Welcome to the Strategic Families Podcast, where we challenge families to be rooted in God's Word, energized with gospel-centered purpose, and activated on mission for His kingdom. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Strategic Families Podcast. This is episode 1.08 with Amy Ray Frank, my sister-in-law, who is just an awesome woman of God, and she's got so much to teach us today about how to make our homes a monastery. And if that sounds a little bit new to you, we'll just listen in because Amy's going to share some great wisdom for us. And it's not just about how we can beautify our homes and make people feel welcome, although it is that, but it's more importantly about how we can be on mission with our kids in our homes, seeing them as fellow ministers in this work. And it's also a place for us to rest and rejuvenate for the work that God has called us to do. So I think you're going to be blessed by this. And here we go. Enjoy. I am very excited to introduce our guest today, my sister-in-law, a lady that I respect tremendously, Amy Ray Frank. Amy, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, my pleasure. Awesome. Well, I am looking forward to this. So our topic today is how we can make our homes a monastery. And Amy, I love that I cornered you into this because I know this is something you're passionate about and uh, something that you can speak very uh, intelligently about and strategically about and just would love to hear all of your ideas on this topic. But first, why don't we just do a quick introduction? Tell us who you are, where you live now, and you know where you grew up, how many kids you have, and, and all that good stuff. Well, I grew up in upstate New York, and uh, coincidentally, Pete was born about 20 minutes from where I lived, uh, but we never met up in New York, and it was 18 years later that we finally met when we were freshmen at Grove City College, and so we dated off and on there for those four years, and then another three years afterwards, so seven years altogether, and so we finally got married. And in the meantime, we had both moved to North Carolina into two different cities and we were doing different graduate programs. So then we got married and lived in Charlotte briefly. And then we moved back to Grove City, Pennsylvania, where that college was. And we were house parents at a detention home for boys. And then Pete worked at a nonprofit for a while in Pittsburgh. And then we went to Northern Virginia for a little while. And then we ended up back down in Charlotte. And that's where we were for the last uh, 17 years. And then last year, we just moved right back to Grove City again, um, because Pete is now the provost at the college that we went to. So it feels kind of full circle. And in those 20 years, uh, we had five children who now range in ages between 11 and 20. Excellent. So Yins are in Pittsburgh now, right? (laughs) <laughs> close to Pittsburgh. Sorry, yep. just, yeah, just a little north <laughs> of Pittsburgh. Well, I hope one day by God's grace, I can send all of my kids there to Grove City. Would and love I will not pull any strings. Maybe uh, we'll see. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, that's excellent. And we've visited your beautiful home up there. I love that that house was built in 1910. And what you guys have done with it is, is amazing. So our first question on the docket here, I know that you and Pete have done a lot of strategic thinking with your family and how you want your family to operate, what kind of home you want to have, and that this even influenced your career choices. So I wonder if you could just take us back to when you were first married. So this is newlywed 
Amy and Pete, and I know Pete had a, a pretty full head, full head of hair back then. I didn't know him, but <laughs> he did. Uh, <laughs> so take us back there and, you know, just talk to us about the plans you had before you started having kids and then what it looked like when you started having kids. Yeah, we, uh, well, yeah, we did a lot of um, brainstorming and thinking and trying to figure out how, how we could best serve the Lord and how we could have a family that would um, be intentional. So pretty much right away, I think while we were still engaged, I was working in the corporate world and I got offered a job as a consultant that would have tripled my salary. And it was a very um, appealing job. There was, I knew who I'd be working with. I really liked them, but it was going to be a lot of travel. So Pete and I talked about it and realized it would not be a good way to start a marriage if I was gone half the time. So I turned that down and that sort of began the um, process of me leaving the business world, which I wasn't terribly sad about doing, <laughs> but um we started to think about me having more time to be at home, but we also thought it would be good if Pete had more time to be home if we had children. So that was a big driving force in why he decided to be a professor, why he went to get his doctorate degree so that he would have summers off and a lot more flexible schedule during the school year. And that that's basically what we did. So for many years, Pete was around a lot and was able to do a lot more with us as a family, which helped me a lot. Uh, I wasn't ready to be kind of home all day by myself. So I was really thankful that he was, was flexible and able to do that. And then I worked part-time to kind of supplement because his salary was quite low for a very long time, but we knew we were trading time for money. And for us, uh, the time together as a family was more important. Mm. I love that. I had never heard that story about you turning down that job. But that's, that is amazing. I would love to know what percentage of the population that has been offered a job three times their salary has turned it down, uh, but that's pretty low. And that is amazing. What an investment in your family. So quick, I, I didn't plan on this question, but let's say that, uh, that we could turn it back and we'd say, all right, so all that money you didn't have, let's give you that money and take away that time. What would you, what would you say to that offer? Yeah, I wouldn't want it. I think, um, I've loved having very little stress. I know if I was in the business world, if I were in the business world, I guess I should say, I, I would be, um, I would be stressed. I would be, you know, the, the alarm clock would be the, the big thing in the morning and, you know, the night before everybody being all stressed, getting ready to get ready for the next day. And I don't want that kind of lifestyle where it's um, just really busy and people are, you know, frustrated with each other because they're stressed and things like that. So I'm, I'm really glad that uh, we have a, a, a more relaxed lifestyle. Was that your awesome. question? Yeah. Yes. I mean, just <laughs> right. Just taking the, it, it was a setup question is that I, I knew, <laughs> I knew what you were going to say. It, you know, it, it's hard to turn down money to get back time. And my working theory is that anyone who has ever done that has never regretted it. And mm. so that's, that's why I, set that question up for you, but no, that's great. So the next question I'd like to ask is just how your perspective on parenting has changed over the years. I remember hearing a quote, uh, this was about a guy who had six kids and he said, uh, before I had kids, I had six theories on how to raise kids. And after I had six kids, I had zero theories on how to raise kids. <laughs> I, love that. I love that quote. So can you tell us how has your perspective on parenting and family life changed over the years? 
Well, two, two things come to mind immediately. One is that we did, well, I did, I read a lot of books ahead of time and I wanted to have all of the uh, equipment and the formulas and the patterns and the, all of the, the best wisdom that was out there so that I would do it right. And the, the very first book I read before our first child was all about how to uh, have a schedule for your baby and you know make sure they stay on the schedule and they sleep at the right times and all these things. And I was a very faithful follower of that book. And immediately our first child did none of those things. <laughs> none, of the, none of what the book said would happen, happened. And so that was my introduction to there, you know, there's some nice advice out there and there's some good, good patterns to follow, but there's no guarantee. And there's really no formula that, that is definitely going to work for every child in every family. Mm-hmm. So um, we've had to adjust and reread things and read new things and just kind of gather as much as we can. But one of the, one of the ways that our perspective has changed a lot, um, when we first started uh, setting up a home and a family, it was kind of fun in the sense that, well, both Pete and I are sort of control freaks. And here we have our own little domain to set up. We have our own little home and we can decide where everything goes and what the systems are going to be and what we're going to buy when and who's going to do what and what the rules are going to be. And it it's kind of fun to think, oh, this is this is my territory. I get to, to decide these things. And then we have these little people coming along into the family and they are like our little subjects and they have to do what we say. And, <laughs> you know, they're going to follow the rules and go where they're supposed to go. And of course, that's a total delusion and it's not right. <laughs> um, so somewhere along the, li- the way, and it wasn't until very late in the process, I wish I'd heard this much later or much earlier, but um, a mentor of mine shared an article with me um, called The Domestic Monastery. And in it, the author um, compares motherhood specifically to life in a medieval monastery. And at first that sounds very bizarre and weird, But the more I started thinking about it and reading about it, um, there are a lot of parallels. And, you know, we kind of think that um, monks and nuns, uh, some of us anyway, would think that they go and they live in these little cloistered off areas to get away from the world. And they're just uh, worshiping God and and working all the time. And that that is a lot of it. Um, But there's more to it also what they what some of them at least were doing. Um, and monasteries became not just a place of worship and work and, and good, simple, quiet rhythms like that, but also a place where they were able to serve their communities. So a lot of them had uh, these storehouses of knowledge because they had this, the scrolls, the books of the time, and they were copying them. So they were preserving, preserving the knowledge of the culture. They were also um, big into uh, gardening and farming and figuring out what herbs go with which kind of um, ailment, you know, so how they could help heal people and use herbs as medicine. They had uh, different artisan crafts that they would do and they would have, you know, honeybees and they would make different things. And then also what I thought was really cool is that a lot of times a monastery was almost considered to be an inn for travelers. So people who were on the road going places knew that they could stop at a monastery and they would probably be allowed to come in and have some food and have a place to stay. So I thought that was a really beautiful image of people who were intentional in pulling back from some of the rhythms of the world, but in order to serve the people around them, not just themselves, but the communities around them. 
So when we think about that for our families and our homes, um, it really changes my perspective from thinking I have my own domain, my own little kingdom, my own little subjects to these are these people in my house, these little people are fellow monks, <laughs> they're fellow um, ser servers, worshipers, workers mm -hmm. with me. And all of this is, is God's kingdom, God's domain. And what are we doing to serve, not just ourselves, but the community around us. So that's been a, a changing perspective, I would say, in our family. Wow, that is beautiful. Speaking of wishing you had heard that earlier, I wish you had I wish we had had a conversation about that about 15 years ago. <laughs> That's, that is awesome. I, I, I love that. I love that picture. What a beautiful picture and a beautiful analogy. Thank you for sharing that with us. I think that's a, that's a great challenge, not only to our thinking, but how we, how we run our homes and how we view our kids. Uh, it's beautiful. And that's actually a great transition because I wanted to ask you guys about hospitality, because this is obviously a huge part of making your home a monastery, as you, as you just said, and, you know, it's important. It's clear to us uh, through the years that you guys really care about hospitality. We have been the uh, beneficiaries of your hospitality uh, before and your home is, is just so beautiful. And I, I know that you guys really care about, about having people over all the time, inviting them, making them feel welcome. And I wonder if you could just give us a, a sense of how that works in your home, how that has become a rhythm. Is that something that, that uh, you guys just take opportunities as they come, or do you think in advance about who you want to have over? How do you, how do you build that rhythm into your life? Well, yeah, I think there's a little of each. I mean, I love spontaneous gatherings. I love it. If people pop by, I love it. If people will just stop over. And so I try to kind of plan ahead for that in hopes that people will do that. And you know, you always feel like you got to serve a little food or something. <laughs> if somebody comes by, I don't like being caught with like nothing to offer somebody except for some carrots. So um, I've gotten in the habit of keeping some cookie dough in the freezer that you can, you know, make cookies in 10 minutes from that or um, uh, having some jugs of lemonade in the refrigerator, things like that. Just things that are quick and easy um, to serve if people stop by. Um, and I try to tell people we are open for that, but you know, people don't take us up on it very often. So we do make plans. We do try to think ahead, you know, who have we not seen lately? Who would we like to get to know better? Who could we have over? And it has been easier last year when we were new to the community, kind of before all the COVID craziness, we didn't have much going on. We had very, very few commitments. So that made it really easy and made us much more intentional about wanting to get to know people quickly. And the same thing happened when we lived in Moldova for a little while, we didn't really have any sports going on or music lessons or things like that. So it was really easy to say, hey, why don't you come over for dinner tonight or tomorrow night? And, and that was nice because other people were the same way. And so um, I love I love life like that. But you know, most of life, there are more commitments and things you have to plan around on the calendar. So it's, um, it has to be a priority to look ahead and say, okay, well, what are we gonna do over the next month? Who can we have over when and all of that. Yeah, that's great. I, I think one of the things I love about having people over is that it it forces different perspectives in your home and you have conversations on things that you didn't plan on. And so it's it just adds an element of surprise. And, you know, sometimes we talk about the same things over and over, which is great, but it's great to have someone else from the outside say, well, what about this? Have you thought about this? And to challenge us. And it's just a a great way to have community. And I think you guys have, have modeled that so well. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. It's nice to have people who are different from you come over and the kids getting to experience that and hear other people's stories. It's really valuable. Yep. Yep. Okay. So we've talked about, you know, having people over, which is awesome. Uh, I think another element of making your home a monastery is the kind of things you want to keep out of your home. So I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about that. How have you and Pete discussed those types of things? How have you implemented protections uh, for your kids so that, you know, it can be a, a truly safe place for them to grow up and, and hear the truth and see the truth embodied? Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, it's tricky when you get down to specific details, which technology and and how to filter and who can do what and what the rules are. So we've done lots of different iterations of things and it kind of depends on the kid and depends on the age and the stage. And in general, we keep technology, computers and uh, uh, any kind of device in the central family area so that um, it's just better accountability. Kids aren't allowed to have things in their rooms and, and after nine o'clock at night, even, even when our son was 18 and living at home, we still had him turn in his phone every night, which he, he loved that. Him. Right. That was like, his yeah, favorite rule. he thought that was really nice, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's been hard for us to lay down hard and fast rules, like no phones till you're whatever age, or I don't know. It just really has depended on, on the kid and the situation at the time, because then school classes require certain technology and, you know, it just makes it hard. So what we've ended up focusing on more is, is teaching our kids that we don't want any hiding and we don't want any lying in our home. That's, those are really big, mm. big, big deals. And we are trying, I don't know to what level of success, but we are trying to instill that in them, that if you are hiding something or if you are doing something that we don't know about, or if you're lying about something, that's going to end up being a huge deal. You know, you got to bring things out into the light. And if you've messed up or you've done something or you're not sure or whatever, just bring it out. Tell it, tell us and, you know, tell the Lord and tell whoever needs to be involved. And and there will be healing and there will be forgiveness and there will be, you know, ways to move forward. But if you're hiding it and you're keeping it, you know, just to yourself, then there, there won't be any of that. There won't be any healing. So that's kind of we just keep instilling that kind of theme. And we're hoping that you know, as the different technology opportunities and uh, temptations arise that, that they will keep those things in mind. That's a great point. That actually, you mentioned technology. There's a, a quote that I wrote down from Roger Ayer's book, The Benedict Option. He said, if we don't treat our homes and schools as monasteries, strictly limiting both the information that comes to our kids for the sake of their own inner formation, as well as their access to brain-altering technologies, we are forfeiting our responsibilities as stewards of their souls and our own. Mm. Ooh, that's a lot. I mean, it's pretty. Yeah. That's pretty intense. But I, I love what you said about having them put away their phones at nine. I mean, it was very, very few good things are going to happen after that point. And I think mm-hmm. you know, you guys just modeled excellently how to limit technology and um, use it appropriately. And I was actually going to ask about the. The, the television in your home, it, it strikes me. Uh, I Honestly, I don't even know where it is because we didn't turn it on a single time when we were at your home. And, you know, where where does that come from? I, that, that's, I think that's rare, you know, and I wonder if you could just talk to us about was that strategic or did you uh, did you misplace it or, or how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, you know, our mom uh, 
kind of probably started to instill all that in us when she used to hide the TV in a cabinet and uh, we had to open the doors to see the TV. So I think she kind of always made it feel like the TV is a little bit gauche and should not be the center place of any room, especially a, you know, a living room of any kind. So I'm sure that's kind of been in the back of my mind all along, but also we just didn't want a TV to be the soundtrack of our lives. You know, if it's, if it's right there in the middle of where you're living, it's in it and it's on, then that's that's the soundtrack and maybe people aren't even paying attention to it all the time but it's just kind of the background and that's not that's not the noise that we really want to have as the background of our lives mm. so um yeah we try to keep it not not right where we are all the time we do watch tv and we do think there are some good things and there's some funny things and there's you know th there's some benefits to certain things but we do keep it limited to certain times and 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 we yeah, we just have we have a few little rules around it that people don't watch TV by themselves. They're with other people and things like that. But yeah, we just don't want it to be the central focus. It's sort of it's a it can be a pastime, but it's not the central focus of our lives. Love it. I remember reading in um, Andy Crouch. Oh, I, I love Andy Crouch. <laughs> I remember in Andy Crouch's book, The TechWise Family, he talks about how you literally want to rearrange your furniture so that the TV is not the central point of, you know, where people gather. And I thought, what a good point. I mean, if, if it's kind of, if that's the way your house is set up, it's kind of like, well, the TV is going to do the entertaining here. And, and, you know, we don't say that out loud, but that is kind of how we operate sometimes. And uh, I thought that was such a, a great point. And you're exactly right. I mean, we don't want TV to be the soundtrack and we don't want it to be the focal point, but we also, we're not going to completely throw it out and say there's nothing good about it. Um, it. We can enjoy it responsibly. And I think you guys have embodied that uh, really well. So well, thank, uh, thank you for enlightening us on that. Well, so another thing that, that I've learned um, is that it's, you know, it's one thing to get your home in order and it's another thing to keep it that way. Uh, so now we're just talking about the general appearance and making people feel welcome in your home. And this is funny. This is a, a constant source of, of stress in our home where, you know, we'll say, well, we have to clean up because somebody's coming over. And one of the kids says, I don't understand. It's just going to get dirty again. It's <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> yes, it is. You know, and you're forced to think on your feet. Uh, but there's a reason we, we clean up. There's a reason we want to have our homes in order. How do you how do you see that in terms of making people feel welcome and and having your home be a, a monastery and a, a place where you can actually do ministry? Yeah, I think we what we tell our kids is we want guests to feel comfortable in our home. And if you walk into somebody else's home and there's dirty socks everywhere and crumbs all over the tables and you can't even put your drink down because there's clutter everywhere and you know it just makes you feel a little less comfortable. And not to say that you can't have people over when your house is a mess. And a lot of people do that and it's wonderful and it's great. And we've done that. <laughs> it's okay. And yeah, it's fine. But ideally you want to try to honor people by not making them go through your dirty socks. So uh, we do ask the kids to clean up the, the main areas of the house. Our house is not clean all the time and it's certainly not ever perfect and no room is perfect, but certain rooms we try to keep a little more comfortable for anybody who might stop by. I, you know, I think about Martha in the, in the Mary and Martha story in the Bible and Martha kind of gets the, the bad rap there because she loses focus and she, you know, puts other things above just spending time with Jesus, but clearly she was doing some things well because th their house, it appears was sort of a hangout spot for Jesus and his 
disciples. And so if our goal is to make disciples, you need a, well, you don't need, but it's nice to have a place to, to be having those kinds of relationships and conversations with people. So it seems like Martha was probably providing food and a place that Jesus liked to go and other people like to go. And so I think that that's a good thing that, you know, it's not the only thing. It's not the, it should not become an idol or the, the main thing, but it is something good that we can do for other people. Agreed. That's a great point about Martha. I had not thought of it that way. <laughs> you would have laughed, Amy. We had some, uh, some friends over a couple of weeks ago and, um, uh, one of them wanted to come up and see our bonus room. We had cleaned the downstairs because we had people coming over and we just thought, well, that's enough. And uh, she said, oh, can I see the bonus room? And I thought, uh, maybe. <laughs> so, and, and, uh, and she said, you know, they had had a bunch of kids. And so she said, you're not going to, you're not going to surprise me, um, but you're right. It, it does provide an environment where conversation is more natural. They feel more welcome. And, and really it's a matter of, of respect and true hospitality. So, and you could have fooled me. I think your, your guy's house has always been clean when I've, I've been over. So <laughs> you haven't looked around everywhere, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. So, you know, Amy, these are great practical tips. Of course, the point of all of this is, is not just that we would have clean, nice homes and, and have presentable families. Uh, of course, we know that uh, we want to be strategic families. We want this to be a part of what the Lord is doing in our homes and through us as families uh, to really bring about his kingdom here on earth. And so I, I wonder if you could talk about how setting up your home as a monastery, providing a, a, a place where your kids can truly be nurtured and, and can grow and thrive in their faith, how that ties into our families being on mission for the Lord. Hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, home should be a place of peace. It should be a, a place where people can be restored. So whether it's, it's just the dad going out to work or the kids are going out to their sports or their schools or whatever, when they come home and, and you know, the mom goes out too, <laughs> but when we all come home, um, it should be a place of it should be a place of peace and a place where our souls can be restored and beauty restores souls. It, uh, it beauty just has some I don't know qualities about it that does something good for us. And so mm. having a place of um, not just order but but having some aspects of beauty in it, I think is a good thing. And especially when somebody is suffering or hurting, um, you need beauty. So not to say we all need to run out and get all the latest things from Pottery Barn and Home Goods and all that kind of stuff, but just having some little bits of intentional, you know, whether it's you go out and cut some flowers in your yard and bring them in, but just something that's beautiful in your home, I think is, um, is good for everybody's soul. And I, and I think the concept of home too is such a beautiful one. Um, you know, that's, that's heaven is when we go home and where we can go overboard here on earth is when we make our homes, we either try to make them heaven or we try to make them our identity. And in either case, you know, we're missing, we're missing the whole point because we, we can't build heaven here. So, we, you know, I think sometimes at least for us women, but maybe for men too, you, you, you have this temptation to make my home, my castle, you know, make it, make it all the, the best things that it can possibly be. And 
as comfortable as it possibly can be and as as pretty as it can be and as whatever. Um, but we're never going to really be able to establish heaven here on earth. We're not supposed to. That's not the goal. Our goal is to make disciples. So using our home to do that is it should be the goal. And if we are making our home our identity, you know, I think that that might be more for women. When I when I open the door, I feel like what my home looks like to visitors reflects on me. And that's that's also wrong. <laughs> that's not my home is not my identity. Um, so, you know, we can go, we can definitely go overboard on, on some of these things, but at the kernel of what home means, it's, it's a good thing and it should be a, a safe place and, a, and definitely a nurturing place where our children hopefully are being shaped to look more like Jesus. And we are becoming shaped to look more like Jesus through our children and through our spouses. So it's a good thing. And, and the word I'm just thinking for, um, as we're nurturing our children and cultivating our our families that cultivate is related to culture and just thinking about how our homes can um, pull in the, the good parts of culture and hold on to and, and even establish good culture that's um, that's I think our role as Christians to, as as salt of the earth to to be preserving what is good and holding on to what is mm -hmm. good and what happened in the past that was good and what's happening now that's good. Um, holding on to those things in our homes, I, I think is a, a noble and, and really fun thing to do. Mm, that's amazing. I think about the high school kids that you had over to your place for, uh, for, you know, thoughtful discussion. Uh, mm. It seems like exactly what you're talking about. Of, of bringing in those aspects of culture that are good and, and worth holding on to. Um, yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a, a beautiful picture, a beautiful description. Uh, I will say when you talk about making heaven and, and sort of uh, tying the idea of heaven into your home, freshly baked sourdough bread is sort of a foretaste of heaven. I mean, can we agree on that? <laughs> just, a, just a little bit. A little wow. bit. Yeah. A little bit. So thank you. I, I love that point. I think that is an awesome way to think about home. And that's going to be an encouragement to everyone listening. So now I wanted to, to turn to, uh, and this is not so much about the home, but I, I have to ask you about it because you guys have done this so well over the years and really been an encouragement to us. But the, the Christian calendar, the, you know, all of these dates that sometimes we pay attention to, sometimes we don't, Advent and Lent and and those kinds of things. I wonder if you could just talk to us, where did the idea to follow all of those come from? How do you guys implement all those things in your home? What has it meant to you over the years? Yeah, really early on when our kids were, the first couple of kids were really small, somebody introduced me to a book that talked about this, um, how you can celebrate the Christian year, how you can orient your whole, uh, your whole life, your calendar, your, the way you plan your time, uh, around the Christian holy days or holidays, as opposed to any other calendar, you know, everybody, everybody's oriented around something, either the, the sports calendars or the school calendars or whatever, but we're oriented around something. And so why not make it the church calendar? And that was revolutionary thinking to me, but I loved it because the church calendar is full of seasons, different seasons where some you're supposed to be feasting and some you're supposed to be fasting and you're supposed to be reflective during this one and just, you know, rejoicing during this one. 
and it, it took away a lot of the feeling of monotony that I had when my kids were little, especially when I was home with them all the time. It kind of felt like every day is the same. <laughs> we get up and do the same things every day. So having seasons and to look forward to or things that were changing was really exciting to me. And I still love that. I, I love the idea of a seasonal life and not just everything is the same all the time. So even when we're in Lent, as we are right now, and that's a hard season, and um, depending on on the year, some years, the way we've observed it is harder than others, but it can be a really uh, sober time and a time of self-denial and, you know, things that we don't really like, but it's, um, it's still so rewarding. I mean, you get to, you get to think about the Lord in totally different ways and appreciate all new qualities about him. So anyway, we've, we've loved having the different seasons and holidays to have different habits um, during different seasons. Cause we're not really good at, we're going to read every single night to our children for the rest of our lives. Like we we're not good at that, but we can commit to, we'll read to them every night from this book for the month of Advent. <laughs> we can do that. So we, ha- we start different little habits during different seasons and we have different decor in the home to remind us of things. And we have different foods and, all of that. So um, it's just been a nice tangible and sensory way, I guess, to to teach the kids, but also for ourselves to um, just to, to appreciate God in different ways. Love that. I think you've been really influential uh, for Katie in thinking through these things. And I, I don't know if you've done these, but I, I highly, highly recommend them. And I'm going to put it in the show notes because they're so awesome. But the books by Arnold Yitriide, I'm not sure how to say his last name. Yeah, but, I know his last name is crazy. Oh, it's, I mean, those books are amazing. Uh, yes, they're Ish- so well done. Very so well, well done. done. Ishtar's mm-hmm. Odyssey and Jotham's Journey and Tabitha's Travels. I think there's, I don't know, there's probably four or five of them, but I'll, I'll put a link to them in the show notes. And um, what an amazing resource. And if, if you haven't read those, you haven't heard of them, basically what it is, is a story that ties into a biblical narrative. So it's a fictional story, but it ties into a biblical narrative and gives a devotion at the end of each little passage. And they take about 10 to 15 minutes to read. And it's just a great way to help your family focus on, on some of those, those uh, Christian calendar dates that we sometimes gloss over. And it, it helps you, as you said, Amy, focus on some, uh, it, it, it adds variety. It adds um, intention and purpose to some of those dates so that we can help our kids and ourselves really see those more clearly and why they're in the Christian calendar, because they're all there for a reason uh, to help cultivate um, faith in our families. So um, yeah, yes. beautiful resource. And thank you for, for sharing. I, I would also love to know about that book that, that influenced you so many years ago. It sounds like a great resource. Yeah, it, that one is called uh, Celebrating the Christian Year, and it's by Martha Zimmerman. And it, it is a really good book. She's got recipes in there and all kinds of ideas and it's, it's good. Oh, that's excellent. I'll put that in the show notes too. So we're almost about to wrap up here, Amy. Can you give us, uh, it, are there any other books or resources that you think of uh, over the years that have really influenced your parenting? Well, that was a harder question for me. Like I said, I've read a lot of books and I think I glean li- different little things from different books, but it's still, you know, it's hard, it's hard to figure out what do I need right this minute at this season for this child. Um, I, John Roseman has been pretty consistently uh, helpful, though, I would say, and his, he's just a very practical, you know, this is how you discipline your children, and this is why, and this is what you do. <laughs> so but he's been 
kind of straight to the point and helpful with um, some of our parenting challenges. And Paul David Tripp and his parenting book, um, which I think is just called Parenting, uh, has also been helpful and um, a little bit more, uh, definitely more spiritual and more um, philosophical, I guess, but uh, very good for getting our, our perspectives shifted. Yeah, I know my wife, Katie, read the Paul Tripp book, Parenting, and she loved it and talks about that all the time. John Roseman, yeah, he's he's great. He's, he's classic. And mm-hmm. uh, John Roseman, he does not mess around. <laughs> that's one of the things I love. That's one of the things I love about his style. Uh, just helps you kind of shape up as a parent. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, that's great. Okay, how about scripture? What comes to mind for you, the, the verses that have influenced your parenting over the years? Yeah, I don't know why this is, but when I pray for my kids, I seem to always gravitate towards verses about trees. <laughs> I don't really know why, no. but our homeschool verses are have been from Isaiah 44. Uh, and they say, I have it written in front of me here, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. And then the other one that is in our kitchen that, um, I just love this image is from Jeremiah 17 says, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Mm. Those are the prayers that I have for our kids, that they would grow up to be those kind of trees that are, um, they're not bothered by drought, but also that they're able to, um, provide shade and and have those green leaves for the community around them. That's beautiful. When you when you mentioned your kitchen, I was thinking about the kitchen at your last house, which had the verse above the top that says, "Taste and see that the Lord is good." I love that having it in the kitchen. Oh, those verses are beautiful. Thank you for sharing those with us and encouraging encouraging us with them. So the last thing, Amy, that we always want to do in the podcast is issue a challenge because I, you know I've listened to a lot of podcasts over the years, and it is really easy to listen and go, oh, that's a good point. Oh, that sounds good. And you just move on <laughs> and you feel like you've done something. Well, you know, action, uh, action is a lot better taking, taking some action. So I wonder if, you know, think about if there are young parents out there listening and, and they say, wow, that's, this is really cool. It sounds like um, Amy and her family have, have done an awesome job over the years of cultivating uh, a home environment that really allows their children to grow and thrive in the Lord. And, and I wonder, are there one or two challenges that you could issue those folks as their kids grow up? Hmm. Well, like I said, I wish I had read that, that article about the domestic monastery much earlier. Cause one of the things that he said was that for a lot of monasteries, they had a, mo- a monastic bell that would ring. And whenever it rang, all of them had to drop whatever they were doing and go to the to whatever they were being summoned to, whether it was a service of some kind or a prayer or whatever. Um, So they had to learn that not only were their possessions not their own, but their time wasn't even their own. And that has been a real challenge to me because I think a lot of times I viewed my children's needs as interruptions to my day or even worse, my night, if they would wake me up in the middle of the night, I felt like just outraged, you know, how dare they? Um, but starting to think 
in terms of a monastic bell, like, oh, my time is not my own and I should be willing to drop whatever I'm doing to, for the sake of somebody else who has a need mm-hmm. that, um, you know, the kids are not the interruptions. They're other people and we, they're not obstacles to my, to my happiness or my plans for the day or whatever it is, but that they are fellow uh, travelers in this world with me. And I should be willing to lay down whatever I'm doing if they need something. So it's sort of um, a way of thinking of how to serve God better to answer him by meeting the needs of the people in my home. So that to me has been a big challenge. Wow. That's a great challenge. I I love that picture. And I have to confess when you first mentioned the bell, I thought, Oh, Amy's going to tell us that we need to have a bell and our kids have to stop (laughs) what they're doing. That shows shows how selfish my parenting is. No, that's a, that's a wonderful point. Yeah. You know, I think about Jesus uh, on the road um, to perform a healing. And that's when the lady stopped him and touched his that's just robe in the middle of the crowd. That was an interruption. And he could have just kept on and said, I've got a mission. Mm-hmm. And he stopped and, and healed her. And you're mm-hmm. right. Our kids are not interruptions to be managed. That's, they are the job description uh, <laughs> as parents. So wonderful. Well, I think that'll do it. Amy, thank you so much for your time. Wonderful tips, wonderful advice, awesome philosophy. I hope that Um, everyone listening can take one or two things at least and say, by God's grace, we're going to do this in our home so that our kids can be nurtured in him. And as you mentioned, that we could have beautiful homes uh, because beauty restores and so that they would be equipped to go out into the world. And as you reminded us to make disciples. So thank you so much. Well, it's always nice talking to you, Graham. I love your intentionality. Wow, what a cool concept. Amy, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. And what a great challenge to treat our homes as monasteries, to do ministry with our kids right in our own homes, to bless others for God's glory. What a cool concept. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Amy. Check us out on strategicfamilies.com. We'd love to hear from you there. Sign up for our email list and we'll send you some cool content. Let's do it. Let's be strategic families together for the Lord Jesus Christ. We can do it with his help. All right, that's a wrap for today. We will see you next time. God bless.